Hey everybody, welcome back to my podcast. This is another episode of Brutal Crime. Today I'm going to be discussing a crime that had sent shockwaves through our nation, and it was the Columbine Massacre. This tragedy has forever been a testament to people's will to survive as well as their will to keep living after such a tragedy has occurred. And today is 2020. Since then, mass shootings have still occurred. People are still dying at the hands of people with guns who get it into their heads that they think they can walk into a place and just end lives like it's nothing. So many people were affected by this tragedy and still are to this very day. Innocent students watched their classmates die. Innocent students ran for their lives. Innocent students were eating lunch and their entire lives completely changed within a split moment. On April 20th, 1999, at Columbine High School in Columbine, Colorado, United States, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold murdered 12 students and one teacher. Ten students were killed in the school library where the pair subsequently committed suicide. 21 additional people were injured with gunshots and gunfire was also exchanged with the police. Another three people were injured trying to escape the school. At the time, it was the deadliest school shooting in United States history. The crime has inspired several copycats see Columbine effect, and Columbine has become a byword for mass shootings. In addition to the shootings, the attack involved several homemade bombs. Two of these were placed in the cafeteria, powerful enough to kill or seriously injure all people within the area, although they failed to detonate. Their cars in the parking lots were made into bombs, which also failed to detonate. And at another location away from the school, two bombs were set up as diversions, only one of which partially detonated. The motive remains unclear, but the pair planned the massacre for around a year and hoped the massacre would cause the most deaths in United States history, which then meant exceeding the death toll of the Oklahoma City bombs, which occurred four years earlier in 1995. U.S. Today referred to the attack as planned as a grand, if badly implemented, terrorist bombing. The police were slow to enter the school and were heavily criticized for not intervening during the shooting. The incident resulted in the introduction of the Immediate Action Rapid Deployment Tactic, which is used in active shooter situations. Columbine also resulted in an increased emphasis on school security with zero-tolerance policies. Debates were sparked over gun control laws and gun culture. High school cliques, subcultures, and bullying also discussed were moral panic over goths, social outcasts, and use of pharmaceutical antidepressants by teenagers, teenage internet use and violence in video games and movies. Many impromptu memorials were created after the massacre, including victims Rachel Scott's car and John Tomlin's truck. Fifteen crosses for the victims and shooters were also erected on top of the hill in Clement Park. 
The crosses for Harris and Klebold were later removed as it caused controversy. A permanent memorial began planning in June in 1999. Designing took three and a half years and included feedback from victims, families, survivors, and high school students and staff in the community. A groundbreaking of the permanent memorial occurred in June 2006. The Columbine Memorial opened up to the public on September 21, 2007. In 1996, 15-year-old Eric Harris created a private website on America Online. It was initially to host levels WADs Harris created for use in the first-person shooter video games Doom and Doom 2, as well as Quake. On the site, Harris began a blog which included jokes on his thoughts on his family, friends, and school. It also detailed Harris sneaking out of the house to cause mischief and vandalism, such as lighting fireworks with his friend Dylan Klebold and others. Harris worked at a fireworks stand and had received several fireworks as a result. The mascot of Columbine High School is the Rebels, and they called the Sneaking Out Rebel Missions. Harris and Klebold adopted the nicknames Reb and Vodka, respectively, beginning in early 1997. The blog postings began to show the first signs of Harris's anger against society. By the end of this year, the site contained instructions on how to make explosives. Harris wrote the true, the first true pipe bombs created entirely from scratch by the rebels, Reb and Vodka. Now our only problem is to find the place that will be ground zero. Harris's site attracted a few visitors and caused no concern until March 1998. Harris ended a blog post detailing murderous fantasies with all I want to do is kill and injure as many as you can. Especially a few people, like Brooks Brown, a classmate of his. Brown claims that Klebold gave him the web address in an effort to warn him of Harris's threats of violence against him. Others suggest that it was in fact discovered by Brooks' brother Aaron Brown in 1997. After Brown's parents viewed the site, they contacted the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. When investigator Michael Guerra accessed the website, he discovered numerous violent threats directed against the students and teachers of CHS. Guerra wrote a draft affidavit requesting a search warrant of the Harris household. The affidavit also mentioned the discovery of an exploded pipe bomb in February 1998 and a suspicion of Harris began involved in the unsolved case. The affidavit was never submitted to a judge and therefore went ignored. On January 30, 1998, Harris and Klebold were arrested for breaking into a van parked near Littleton and stealing tools and computer equipment. They would subsequently attend a joint court hearing where they pled guilty to the felony theft. The judge sentenced them to a juvenile diversion program. As a result, both delinquents attended a mandatory class such as the anger management and talked with diversion officers. They both were eventually released from diversion several weeks early because of a positive actions in the program and put on probation. Nearly a year before the massacre, Klebold wrote a message in Harris's 1998 yearbook, Killing Enemies, Blowing Up Stuff, Killing Cops. My wrath for January's incident will be godlike, not to mention our revenge in the commons. The commons was another term for the school cafeteria. Harris and Klebold kept journals, which were released to the public in 2006. In the journals, the pair would eventually document their arsenal and plan of attack. Shortly after the court hearing for the van break-ins, Harris reverted to his website back to just posting user-created levels of doom. He began to write his thoughts down in a journal instead. It shows a long period of methodical preparation for the massacre. 
Harris even wrote on his computer about possibly escaping to a foreign country after the attack or hijacking an aircraft at Denver International Airport and crashing it into New York City. Klebold had already been writing down his thoughts since March 1997. As early as November 1997, Klebold mentioned going on a killing spree. Harris and Klebold also used their schoolwork to foreshadow the massacre. They both displayed themes of violence in creative writing projects. Harris wrote a paper on the school shootings and a poem from the perspective of a bullet. A Klebold wrote a short story about a man killing students which worried his teacher so much that she alerted his parents. Both had actively researched war and murder. For one project, Harris wrote a paper on the Nazis and Klebold wrote a paper on Charles Manson. In a psychology class, Harris wrote, he dreamed of going on a shooting spree with Klebold. Harris's journals describe several experimental bomb detonations. Harris and Klebold were both enrolled in a video production classes and kept five videotapes that were recorded with the school video equipment. Only two of these hitmen were higher in Rampart, in Rampart range and part of a third had been released. The remaining three tapes detail their plans and reasons for the massacre included in the ways they hid their weapons and deceived their parents. Most of these were shot in the Harris family basement and are known as the basement tapes. Thirty minutes before the attack, they made a final video saying goodbye and apologizing to their friends and families. In December 1999, before anyone else had seen them, Time magazine published an article on these tapes. The victim's family members threatened to sue Jeffco. As a result, select victim families and journalists were allowed to see them, and they were kept from the public indefinitely for fear of inspiring future massacres. The tapes had since allegedly been destroyed. There are only transcripts of some of the dialogue and a short clip recorded surreptitiously by a victim's father. The pair claimed they were going to make copies of the tapes to send to news stations, but never did. When an economics class had Harris make an ad for business, he and Klebold made a video called Hitman for Hire on December 8, 1998, which, released, which was released in February 2004. It depicts them as part of the trench coat mafia, a clique in the school who wore black trench coats, extorting money for protecting preps from bullies. They were apparently not a part of the trench coat mafia, but were friends with some of its members. They wore black trench coats on the day of the massacre, and the video seemed kind of a dress rehearsal showing them walking into the halls of the schools and shooting bullies outside with fake guns. On October 21, 2003, a video was released showing the pair doing target practice on March 6, 1999, in a nearby foothills known as Rampart Range, with the weapons they would use in the massacre. In the early morning hours before the massacre, Harris left a microcassette labeled Nixon, on the kitchen table. On it, Harris said it is less than nine hours now, placing the recording at some time around 2.30 a.m. He went on to say, people will die because of me, and it will be the be a day that will be remembered forever. On, yeah, this is Jen. On my high school, we have shots being fired. Okay. Shots being fired. Party. Shit. They're hit. Yeah, we've got the call, man. We've got someone on the call here. Thank you. Do you know if anybody's injured?
by the recordings this massacre was terrifying and how these recordings are still present today I'm grateful for them because it not only gives you an inside look to how incredibly devastating this was but it also shows you how serious the situation was According to their journals and videos, the pair hoped that after detonating their homemade explosives in the cafeteria at the busiest lunch hour, killing hundreds of students, they would shoot, stab, and toss bombs at survivors fleeing from the cafeteria. Then bombs set in the boys' cars in the parking lot would detonate, killing any remaining students as well as police vehicles, ambulance, fire trucks, or reporters who had come to the school. This did not happen since the bombs in the cafeteria and cars failed to detonate. Several official sources claim they planned to shoot the fleeing survivors from the parking lot, but moved to the staircase on a hill at the west side of the school when the bombs failed. Other students claim the top of the staircase where the massacre began was their pretend spot to wait for the bombs to go off. On Tuesday morning, April 20, 1999, Harrison Klebold placed two duffel bags in the cafeteria, each bag contained a propane bombs, which were set to detonate at 11.17 a.m. during the A lunch shift. No witness recalled seeing the duffel bags being added to the 400 or so backpacks that were already in the cafeteria. The security staff at CHS did not observe the bags being placed in the cafeteria. A custodian was replacing the school security videotape at around 11.14 a.m., which might have been the time that the duffel bags were dropped off. Some internet sleuths claim the bomb placement can be seen on the surveillance video around 10.58 a.m. Shortly after the massacre, police also investigated whether the bombs were placed during the school after prom party held the prior weekend. 
Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was assigned to the school as a full-time school resource officer. Gardner usually ate lunch with the students in the cafeteria, but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching the students in the smoker's pit in the Clement Park, a meadow adjacent to the school. Two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and small propane bombs were also placed in a field about three miles south of CHS and two miles south of the fire station, set to detonate at 11.14 a.m. The bombs were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated, causing a small fire which was quickly extinguished by the fire department. Bomb technicians immediately examined the bombs and relayed to the police at the school, possibly devices with motion activators. Around 11.10 a.m., Harrison Klebold arrived separately at CHS. Harris parked his vehicle in the junior student parking lot and Klebold parked in the adjoining senior parking. The school cafeteria was their primary bomb target. The cafeteria had a long outside window while ground level doors and was just north of the senior parking lot. The library was located above the cafeteria in the second story of the window wall. Each car contained bombs timed to detonate at 12 o'clock p.m. As Harris pulled into the parking lot, he encountered classmates Brooks Brown, which whom he had recently patched up a long-standing series of disputes. According to Brown, who was smoking a cigarette, he was surprised to see Harris, whom he earlier noted had been absent from a class test. Brown confronted Harris about missing the test. Harris seemed unconcerned, commenting, it doesn't matter anymore. Harris went on, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. Brown, feeling uneasy and already prepared to skip his next class, walked away. Several minutes later, students departing Columbine for lunch break observed Brown heading south down Pierce Street away from the school. Meanwhile, Harrison Klebold armed themselves using straps and webbing to conceal weapons beneath black trench coats, technically dusters. They lugged black packs and duffel bags that were filled with pipe bombs and ammunition. Harris also had his shotgun in one of the bags beneath the trench coats. Harris wore a homemade bandolier and a white t-shirt that read Natural Selection in black letters. Klebold wore a black t-shirt that read Wrath in red letters. The cafeteria bombs failed to detonate. Had these bombs exploded with full power, they could have killed or severely wounded all of the 488 students in the cafeteria and possibly made the ceiling collapse by destroying the pillars holding it up, dropping the library into the cafeteria. At 11.19 a.m., 17-year-old Rachel Scott and her friend Richard Costello were having a lunch and sitting down on the grass next to the west entrance of the school. Klebold threw a pipe bomb towards the parking lot. The bomb only partially detonated, thinking that the pipe bomb was no more than a crude senior prank. Costello did not take it seriously. Several students who were inside the school during the incident first thought they were watching a prank. A witness reported hearing go-go before Klebold and Harris pulled their guns from beneath their trench coats and began shooting at Costello and Scott. Scott was killed instantly when she was hit four times with rounds fired from Harris's carbine. One was shot in the left temple. Costello was shot eight times in the chest, arm, and abdomen. He fell unconscious to the ground and was left paralyzed below the chest. Harris aimed his carbine down the west stair staircase in the direction of three students, Daniel Rorbo, Sean Graves, and Lance Kirkland. The students were about to walk up the staircase directly below the shooters. Harris fired, killing Rorbo and injuring Graves and killing Kirkland. And Kirkland. Dave Sanders, a teacher and coach at the school, was in the cafeteria when he heard gunfire and began warning students. The shooters turned and began firing west in the direction of five students sitting on the grassy hillside adjacent to the steps and opposite the west entrance of the school. 
Michael Johnson was hit in the face, leg, and arm, but ran and escaped. Mark Taylor was shot in the chest, arms, and leg, and fell to the ground where he faked his death. The other three escaped uninjured. Klebold walked down the steps towards the cafeteria. He came up to Lance Kirkland, who was already wounded and lying on the ground, weakly calling for help. Klebold said, sure, I'll help you, and then shot Kirkland in the face with his shotgun, critically wounding him. Graves, paralyzed beneath the waist, had crawled into the doorway of the cafeteria west entrance and collapsed. He rubbed blood on his face and played dead. After shooting Kirkland, Klebold walked, down, walked towards the cafeteria door. He then stepped over the injured Graves to enter the cafeteria. Graves remembers Klebold saying, sorry, dude. Jesus. Klebold only briefly entered the cafeteria and did not shoot at the several people still inside. Officials speculated that Klebold went to check on the propane bombs. Harris was still on top of the stairs, shooting and severely wounded and partially paralyzed the 17-year-old Erin Marine Hotchhalter as she tried to flee. Klebold came out of the cafeteria and went back up the stairs to join Harris. They shot at students standing close to a soccer field but did not hit anyone. They walked toward the west entrance, throwing pipe bombs in several directions, including onto the roof. Only a few of these pipe bombs detonated. Witnesses heard one of them say, this is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. Meanwhile, art teacher Patty Nelson was inside the school. She had noticed the com commotion and walked toward the west entrance with the student, Brian Anderson. Nielsen had intended to walk outside to tell the two of the students to knock it off, thinking that they were either filming a video or pull, pulling a student prank. As Anderson opened the first set of do double doors, the gunman shot out the windows, injuring him with flying glass. Nelson was hit in the shoulder with shrapnel, and Anderson and Nelson ran back down the hall into the library, and Nelson alerted the students inside to the danger, telling them to get under their desk and keep silent. She dialed 911 and hid under the library's administrative counter. Anderson fell to the floor, bleeding from his injuries. He then hid inside the magazine room adjacent to the library. 11.22 a.m. Police response. At 11.22 a.m., a custodian called Deputy Neil Gardner assigned to the resource officer Columbine on the school radio requesting assistance in the senior parking lot. The only paved route took him around the school to the east and south end on Pierce Street, where at 11.23 a.m. he heard on his police radio that a female was down and assumed she had been struck by a car. While exiting his patrol car in the senior lot at 11.24 a.m., he heard another call on the school radio, Neil, there's a shooter in the school. Harris is at the west entrance, immediately turned and fired 10 shots from his carbine at, the garden, at Gardner, who was 60 yards away. As Harris reloaded his carbine, Gardner leaned to the top of his car and fired four rounds at Harris from his service pistol. Harris ducked back behind the building, and Gardner momentarily believed that he had hit him. Harris then reemerged and fired at least four more rounds at Gardner, which missed and struck two parked cars, before retreating into the building. No one was hit during the exchange of gunfire. Gardner reported on his police radio shots in the building, I need someone in the south hall, south lot with me. By this point, Harris had shot 47 times and Klebold just five. The shooters then entered the school through the west entrance, moving along the main north hallway, throwing pipe bombs and shooting at anyone they encountered. Klebold shot Stephanie Munson in the ankle, and she was able to walk out of the school. The pair then shot out the windows to the east entrance of the school. After proceeding through the hall several times, shooting toward and missing any student they saw, they went, toward, went, they went toward the west entrance and turned into the library hallway. Deputy Paul Smoker, a motorcycle patrolman for the Jeffco Sheriff's Office, was writing a traffic ticket 
north of the spool when the female down call came in at 11.23 a.m. Taking the shortest route, he drove his motorcycle over grass between the athletic fields headed toward the west entrance when he saw Deputy Scott Taborski following him in the patrol car. He abandoned his motorcycle for the safety of the car. The two deputies had begun to rescue two wounded students near the ball fields when another gunfire broke out at 11.26 a.m. as Harris returned to the double doors and began shooting at Deputy Gardner, who returned fire. From the hilltop, Deputy Smoker fired three rounds from his pistol at Harris, who again retreated into the building. As before, no one was hit. Inside the school cafeteria, teacher Dave Sanders and two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Galantine, initially told students to get under the tables, then successfully evacuated students up the staircase leading to the second floor of the school. The stairs were located around the corner of the library hall in the main south hallway. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as he could. By now, Harris and Klebold were inside the main hallway. Sanders had another student were down at the end of the hallway, where he had gestured for students in the library to stay. They encountered Harris and Klebold, who were approaching from the corner of the north hallway. Sanders and the student turned and ran in the opposite direction. Harris and Klebold shot at them both, with Harris hitting Sanders twice in the back and neck, but missing the student. The latter ran into a science classroom and warned everyone to hide. Klebold walked over towards Sanders, who had collapsed, and tossed a pipe bomb into the cafeteria, then returned to Harris up the, up the library hallway. Sanders struggled toward the science area, and a teacher took him into a classroom where 30 students were located. Due to his knowledge of the first aid, student Aaron Hansey was brought into the classroom from another by teachers despite the unfolding commotion with the assistance of a fellow student named Kevin Starkey and teacher Teresa Miller. Hansey admitted first aid to Sanders for three hours, attempting to stem, to stem the blood loss using shirts from students in the room and showing him pictures from his wallet to keep him talking. Using a phone in the room, Miller and several students maintained contact with the police outside the school. 11.29 to 11.36 a.m., the library massacre. As the shooting unfolded, Patty Nelson talked on the phone with emergency services, telling her story and urging students in the library to take cover beneath the desks. According to transcripts, her call was received by a 911 operator at 11.25-18 a.m. 52 students, two teachers, two librarians were in the library. A bomb was thrown down the library hall by Harris. At 11.29 a.m., according to reports, Klebold entered the library first, followed by Harris just a few seconds later. Harris yelled, get up. When nobody responded, Harris fired his shotgun twice at a desk. Student Evan Todd had been standing near a pillar when the students entered the library and had just taken cover behind a copier. Todd was hit by wood splinters in the eye and lower, lower back but was not seriously injured. He then hid behind an administrative counter once Harris and Klebold moved. The, student, the shooters walked into the library towards the two rows of computers. Disabled student Kyle Vasquez was sitting at the north row. Klebold fired a shotgun twice at Velasquez, finally fatally hitting him in the head and back. The shooters put down their ammunition-filled duffel bags at the south or lower row of the computers and reloaded their weapons. They walked between the computer rows toward the windows facing the outside staircase. They, especially Klebold, began shouting, speaking to all the students in the library. Throughout the massacre in the library, they ordered everybody in the library to get up and so the library was going to explode. They stated how long they had been waiting for this and seemed to be enjoying themselves, shouting things like, Yahoo! After shouting, they repeatedly ordered the jocks to stand up. One of them said, anybody with a white hat or a sports emblem on it is dead. 
Wearing a white baseball cap at Columbine was a tradition among the sports team members. Nobody stood up and several students tried to hide their white hats. Noticing that the police were evacuating students outside the school windows were shot out with the direction of the police. Officers returned fire and the gunman retreated from the window. No one was injured. Klebold then removed his trench coat and he shouted for the jocks to stand up and when no one did, he said, fine, I'll just start shooting and fired his shotgun at a nearby table, injuring three students, Patrick Ireland, Daniel Stapleton, and Mackay Hall. Harris walked toward the lower row of computer desks with a shotgun, firing a single shot under the desk from a short distance away, while down on one knee, he hit 14-year-old Stephen Conroe with a mortal wound to the neck. He then walked closer and got on one knee and shot under the adjacent computer desk, injuring 17-year-old Casey Rigsher with a shot which passed completely through her right shoulder also grazing her neck and severing a major artery. When she started gasping in pain, Harris tersely stated, quit your bitching. Harris walked over to a table south of the lower computer table, slapped the surface twice, and knelt saying peekaboo to a 17-year-old Cassie Bernal before shooting her once in the head, killing her. Harris had been holding the shotgun with one hand at this point, and the weapon hit his face and recoil, injuring his nose. He told Klebold he had done so. And Klebold responded, why did you do that? After fatally shooting Bernal, Harris turned toward the next table where Brie Pascal sat next to the table rather than under it. Harris's nose was bleeding. Witnesses later reported that he had blood around his mouth. Asking Harris asked Pascal if she wanted to die, and she responded with a plea for her life. Harris laughed and responded, everyone's going to die. When Klebold said, shoot her, Harris responded, no, we're going to blow up the school up anyway. Klebold noticed Ireland trying to provide aid to Hall, who had suffered a wound to his knee. As Ireland tried to help Hall, his head rose above the table. Klebold shot him in the second time, hitting him twice in the head and once in the foot. Ireland was knocked unconscious but survived. Klebold then walked towards another table where he discovered 18-year-old Isaiah Schultz, 16-year-old Matthew Ketcher, and 16-year-old Craig Scott, Rachel's younger brother, hiding underneath. Klebold called out to Harris that he found a nigger and tried to pull Schultz out from under the table. Harris left Pascal and joined him. According to witnesses, they taunted Schultz for a few seconds, making derogatory racial comments. The gunmen both fired under the table. Harris shot Schultz once in the chest, killing him, and Klebold shot and killed Ketcher. Though Schultz was not shot in the head, Klebold said, I didn't know black brains could fly that far. Jesus. Meanwhile, Scott was uninjured, lying in the blood of his friends, fearing, feigning death. Feigning death, Harris then yelled, who's ready to die next? He turned and threw a cricket at the table where Hall, Stapleton, and Ireland were located. It landed on Stapleton's thigh. Hall quickly noticed it and tossed it behind them, and it exploded in midair. Harris walked toward the bookcase between the west center of the section, and he jumped onto one and shook it, apparently attempting to topple it, and then shot at the books which had fallen. Klebold walked to the east area of the library. Harris walked from the bookcase past the central area to meet Klebold. The latter shot at the display case next to the door and then turned and shot toward the closest table, hitting and injuring 17-year-old Mark Hinton in the head and shoulder. He then turned toward the table to his left and fired injuring 18-year-old Lisa Krutz, Lauren Townsend, and Valene Scher with the same shotgun blast. Klebold then moved toward the same table and fired several shots with the TEC-9, killing Lauren Townsend. At this point, the seriously injured Valene Scher began screaming, Oh my God, oh my God. In response, Klebold asked Scher if she believed in the existence of God. When Scher re replied that she did, 
Klebold asked why and commented, God is gay. Klebold reloaded but walked away from the table. Harris approached another table where two girls were hiding. He bent down and looked at them and dismissed them as pathetic. Harris then moved to another table where he fired twice, injuring 16-year-olds Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin moved out from under the table. Klebold shot him repeatedly, killing him. Harris then walked back over to the table at the side of the table where Townsend lay dead. Behind the table, 16-year-old girl named Kelly Fleming had, like Brie Pascal, sat down next to the table rather than beneath it due to a lack of space. Harris shot Fleming with his shotgun, hitting her in the back and killing her. He shot at the table behind Fleming, hitting Townsend, who was already dead. Kreutz again and wounding 18-year-old Gina Park. The shooters moved to the center of the library where they reloaded their weapons at a table. Harris then pointed his carbine under a table, but the student he was aiming at moved out of the way. Harris turned his gun back on the student and told him to identify himself. It was John Savage, an acquaintance of Klebold. He asked Klebold what they were doing, to which he shrugged and answered, killing people. Savage asked if they were going to kill him. Possibly because of a fire alarm, Klebold said, what? Savage asked again whether they were going to kill him. Klebold said no and told him to run. Savage fled, escaping through the library's main entrance. After Savage left, Harris turned and fired his carbine at the table directly north of where he had been, hitting the ear and hand of 15-year-old Daniel Mosser. Mosser re reacted by either shoving a chair at Harris or grabbing at his leg. Harris fired again and hit Mosser in the center of his face at close range, killing him. Both shooters moved south and fired randomly under a table, critically injuring two 17-year-olds, Jennifer Doyle and Austin Eubanks, and fatally wounding 17-year-old Corey DePooter. He was the last to die in the massacre at 11.35 a.m. There were no further victims. They had killed 10 people in the library and wounded 12 of the 56 library hostages. 34 remained unharmed. Investigators would later find that the shooters had enough ammunition to have killed them all. At this point, several witnesses later said that they heard the shooters comment that no longer found a thrill in shooting their victims. Klebold was quoted saying, maybe we should start knifing people. That might be more fun. They moved away from the table and went toward the library's main counter. Harris threw a Molotov cocktail toward the southwestern end of the library, but it failed to explode. Harris then went around to the east side of the counter, and Klebold joined him from the west. They converged close to where Todd had moved after had been wounded. Klebold pulled the chair out from behind the desk, and he pointed his TEC-9 at Todd and commented, Look what we have here. Harris asked what. Klebold responded, Just some fat fuck. Todd was wearing a white hat. Klebold asked if he was a jock, and when Todd said no, Klebold responded, Well, that's good. We don't like jocks. Klebold then demanded to see his face. Todd partly lifted his hat so his face would be, remain obscured. When Klebold asked Todd to give him one reason why they should not kill him, Todd said, I don't want trouble. Klebold responded back angrily, Trouble? You don't even know what trouble is. Todd tried to correct himself. That's not what I meant. I mean, I don't have a problem with you guys. I never will and never did. Klebold then spoke to Harris. I'm going to let this fat fuck live. You can have him if you want to. Harris, apparently not paying much attention to the exchange, looked at Todd and then back at Klebold and said, let's go to the commons. Klebold fired a single shot and into an open library staff break room, hitting a small television. While Harris was walking away, Klebold said, wait a minute, there's one more thing. Klebold picked up the chair beside the library under the counter which Patty Nelson was hiding and slammed the chair down on top of the computer terminal and library counter. Klebold joined Harris at the library entrance. The two walked out of the library at 11.36 a.m. Cautiously fearing the shooter's return, 29 uninjured and 10 injured survivors began to evacuate the library through the north emergency exit door, which led to the sidewalk adjacent to the west entrance. Casey Register was evacuated from the library by Craig Scott. 
She had not been evacuated at this point. Bridget would likely have bled to death from her injuries. Patrick Ireland was unconscious and Lisa Kreutz unable to move remaining in the building. Patty Nelson crawled into the exterior break room into which Klebold had earlier fouled shots and hid in the cupboard. After leaving the library, Harris and Klebold entered the science area where they caused a fire in an empty storage closet. It was extinguished by a teacher who had been hidden in an adjacent room. The gunmen then proceeded toward the south hallway where they shot into an empty science room. At 11.44 a.m., they, they were captured on school security cameras as they entered the cafeteria. The recording shows Harris kneeling on the landing and firing a single shot toward one of the propane bombs left in the cafeteria. Is in an unsexful attempt to detonate it. As Klebold approached the propane bomb and examined it, Harris took a drink from one of the cups left behind. Klebold lit a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the propane bomb. They left the cafeteria at 11.46, several seconds after the Molotov cocktail exploded. About a minute later, the gallon of fuel attached to the bomb ignited, blowing out a few windows and causing a fire that was extinguished by the fire sprinklers a few minutes later. After leaving the cafeteria, they returned to the north, main, south hallways of the school shooting aimlessly. They walked through the south hallway into the main office before returning into the north hallway. On several occasions, they looked through the windows of classroom doors, making eye contact with students hidden inside, laughing and taunting at them, but they never tried to enter or shoot them in any of the rooms. They taunted students hidden be inside a bathroom, making such comments as, we know you're in there, let's kill anyone we find in here, but never attempted to enter the bathroom. At 11.56 a.m., they returned to the cafeteria and briefly entered the school kitchen. They returned to the staircase and into the south hallway at 12 p.m. They re-entered the library, perhaps to watch their car bombs detonate, one of which had been set to explode at noon, and both which failed. The library was empty of surviving students except for the unconscious Patrick Ireland and the injured Lisa Kreutz once inside. At 12.02, they shot through the west window at police who returned fire. Nobody was injured in the exchange. By 12.05, all gunfire from school had ceased. By 12.08 p.m., both gunmen had killed themselves. In subsequent interview, Kreutz recalled hearing a comment such as, you in the library around this time, Harris sat down with his backpack to a bookshelf, with his back to a bookshelf and fired a shotgun through the roof of his mouth. Klebold went down on his knees and shot himself in the left temple with his TEC-9 at an article. Rocky Mountain News stated that Patty Nelson overheard them shout one, two, three in unison just before a loud boom. Nielsen said that she never had spoken with either of the writers of the article. And evidence suggests otherwise, just before shooting himself, Klebold lit a Molotov cocktail on a nearby table, underneath which Patrick Ireland was laying, which caused the tabletop to momentarily catch fire. Underneath the scorched film of the material was a piece of Harris's brain matter, uh, suggesting Harris had shot himself by this point. In 2002, the National Enquirer published two postmortem photos of Harris and Klebold, showing both teenagers lying on their backs in the gun's seemingly curious locations. This led to speculations that Harris shot Klebold before killing himself. The, photographer, the photographs were taken after SWAT had checked the bodies for bombs and booby traps, and placement of his blood and baseball cap suggested Klebold first fell down on Harris's legs before expiring on his back. A total number of 188 rounds of ammunition were fired by the perpetrators during the massacre. Harris fired nearly twice as much as Klebold. He fired his carbine rifle a total of 96 times and discharged his shotgun 25 times. Klebold fired this TEC-9 handgun 55 times and 12 rounds from his double-barreled shotgun. Law enforcement officers fired 141 rounds during the exchange of gunfire with the shooters. So as you can tell that this massacre was absolutely devastating. A lot of people don't know in full detail of the 100% facts of what happened that day. 
but when you go through and you watch the footage, you see the children and they're, they're talking about how, how devastating this was. Immediately, the parents of the shooters get the most hate. In my next Columbine segment, I will be talking about the victims as well as the shooters because a lot of people don't seem to understand that Eric and Dylan had family and their family were victims. They were deemed as parents of demons and they didn't, how could they not know what was happening? How could they not understand? Sue Klebold, Dale, uh, was on a lot of talk shows explaining that she didn't understand what was happening with her son. She exchanged words with him before he left her house and she had no idea. And she remained in hiding for a while because of how much hate and criticism she got for being the mother of, of a Columbine shooting. If you have not seen her TED Talks episode, I would watch it. It's it's truly and utterly heartbreaking. The victims of the Columbine massacre have sparked so much into people trying to understand why these shootings happen. Is it because of bullies? Is it because of anger? Is it because of medication? A lot of people actually um, blamed Marilyn Manson for this massacre. They, they said that his music was the one was one of the main reasons why these students died. Um, there's also a documentary called Bowling for Columbine, and truth be told, it's very unfair to blame anybody in this situation rather than just the shooters themselves. Nobody else was responsible for this, except for the two shooters. Regardless of what their reason for doing this is, nobody is to be blamed but them. But there were reasons why they did this. There were, there were reasons that people choose not to focus on. There were, people want somebody to blame. People want to blame the parents. People want to blame rock, rock music. People want to blame certain video games and things like this, when that's not the case at all. My hope in speaking about this crime is to shed light on the fact that when a, tra when a tragedy like this happens, the media wants to blame guns. The media wants to blame proper gun usage. Um, people want to blame the parents. People want to blame music. People want to blame video games. People want to blame all of these different subjects instead of actually just looking at, the uh, looking at the victims and what happened to them and trying to find a reason to make sense of this. There is no reason for this period. There is no reason to kill anybody. This is a selfless act that is cast upon innocent victims, and no matter how many times you try to make sense of this, it's never going to make sense. You're never going to stop gun control. You're never, you're, you're never going to have gun control. You're never going to stop shootings. Your crime is inevitable. It's going to happen regardless if we try to stop it or not. What I want to understand, what I want to understand from this is why we have as a nation been talking about gun control since this tra tragedy happened and yet ever since many school shootings have happened since then 
gun control is still the issue, yet it's not the issue. It's not about having access to guns. It's about understanding that this, tra this tragedy took a year to unfold. These people knew what they were doing. These people had blogs. These people planned this. These people had made videos and had been seen doing these despicable things on the internet and nobody stopped them. This isn't about gun control. This is about people control. This is about taking a threat and not ignoring it. This is about seeing a this is about seeing a problem and, and ignoring it and pretending like nothing is going to come of it. This is how this is how tragedies happen because people ignore the minority thinking that nothing is going to come of it when in reality just the smallest threat should be taken consideration because that small threat can turn into a huge tragedy and that is what happened at Columbine High School. Thank you everybody for listening. I will be back tomorrow with part two of the Columbine series where I will be talking about the victims and the shooters as well as the families of the shooters and the families of the victims and what they wanted to see happen out of this tragedy. On top of that, please, if you know anybody that you suspect could be in trouble or could possibly be showing signs that they are going to do something as something like this, please report them to police. Please don't ignore that gut feeling does not matter if you think it's nothing. It doesn't matter if you think you're going to get ignored. It does not matter if you suspect that somebody you know or that somebody could be in the process of committing a tragedy like this. Please tell somebody, tell the police. Any voice is bigger than no voice. Thank you and I will talk to you later. This is another crime segment of Brutal Crime.